So tonight we want to look at chapter 14. And if we had to put a header on this, it would be listen. And so first in verses 1 through 5, we're going to listen to the song of the redeemed. And then in verses 6 through 13, we're going to listen to the sermons of the angels. And then in verses 14 through 20, we're going to listen to the pressing of the grapes of wrath. And so we want to listen to what God has to say. Let me read for us. Let's start and just take this first section in Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had taken his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. At the end of chapter 12, the dragon, who is the devil and Satan, stood on the sand of the sea as if to call forth those ancient beasts, Leviathan, the beast from the sea, and Behemoth, the beast from the earth. These beasts have had many appearances throughout the story of human history, human manifestations of the dragon's evil will and destructive intent. Though they seem wild and outrageous in the eyes of humanity, they are domesticated, the house pets in the abode of the ancient serpent who summons them one last time at the end of days to join him in making war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The beast from the sea is the false son figure in the unholy trinity. Jesus foretold his rising at the abomination of desolation. Paul foretold his appearance as the man of lawlessness. John in his epistles termed him the Antichrist, and in chapter 11 of the Revelation, he called him the beast of the abyss. The beast is, this beast is concerned with world domination and will hold sway over the world because he mimics the triumph of Jesus over death by surviving a mortal wound. As if his power was not sufficient in itself, the beast of the earth, who is later called the false prophet, comes forward to stir up the religious devotion of those who dwell on the earth and direct them to the adoration of the beast of the sea. While the use of these symbols and figures may seem fanciful and far-fetched, we must remember that God is not the author of confusion. The effort here on the part of Jesus Christ to show John the things that are and that must soon take place is not to excite the faithful, but to educate us. John is empowered to teach us pastorally what to look for as the day of the Lord approaches so that we are neither driven to despair nor duped by the devil. Eugene Peterson writes, St. John's Apocalypse does not underrate the satanic, 
We are opposed by great power and deception. All the same, a lot of it is sheer bluff and the caricaturing of visions that reduce the satanic trinity from what it puffs itself up to be to what it merely is. This is not supernatural power before which we are helpless. It is more like paranatural power that we are not used to. But trained by St. John's pastoral imagination, we are equipped to stand fast and discern. The visions of chapter 14 are in keeping with what the mission of equipping God's people are in keeping with the mission of equipping God's people to be faithful. These visions show us that while we are doing our best to worship God and not the powers of the world, to understand our faith and not be misled by the devil's religious flimflam, and to cultivate a life of holiness in a weed-filled society, we are being helped to do each of those tasks, Peterson writes. The first vision that John has in chapter 14 is of the victorious lamb and his conquering people. From the outset, we should understand that this is not a vision that is occurring in real time. Remember that chapter 14 occurs in the midst of an interlude after the blasting of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11 and the outpouring of the first bowl that will come in chapter 16. This interlude is used in chapter 12 to explain the reason for warfare on the witnesses of Jesus, namely that the dragon could not conquer him. It's used in chapter 13 to explain how this warfare is conducted on the witnesses, namely by the deception of those who dwell on the earth into taking the mark of the beast and destruction of those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And it's used in chapter 14 to explain the outcome of this war against the witnesses of Jesus, namely that they gain eternal life by losing earthly life, even as those who dwell on earth are tares sifted out of the wheat bound for the fire and wild grapes thrown into the winepress bound for crushing beneath the one whose feet were like burnished bronze. George Eldon Ladd writes that the vision is not actually realized until chapters 20 to 22, but as he often does, John gives his reader anticipatory visions of what is yet to be to steady them for the hard experiences that lie immediately ahead. John wrote in verse 1 of chapter 14 that on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This is the solitary occurrence of Zion, that word, in the apocalypse. John uses it only once in his gospel in chapter 12 and verse 15, where he quotes Zechariah 9 and verse 9 as a part of the triumphal entry narrative. And he never uses the idea of Zion in his epistles. John does, however, use other language to communicate the same idea. In chapter 21, in verse 2 of the Revelation, he envisions the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in chapter 21, in verse 10, he's carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain where he is shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And in chapter 22 in verse 19, he is told that if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. 
The vision of Mount Zion in chapter 14 and verse 1 is equivalent to the vision of the New Jerusalem and the Holy City in chapters 21 and 22. Beal writes that his location on Zion, that is the Lamb's location on Zion, emphasizes his genuineness since that is one of the names for the true city of God's dwelling of God in the Old Testament. Rarely does the name refer to a place of sin and judgment, Jerusalem being the term reserved primarily for that reference. It is used of God's dwelling in the temple and as a term for the people of God. But then Beale says it most commonly refers to the city that God will establish and rule over at the end of the age, which subsumes and escalates the prior ideas. Ladd expounds on this writing, Jerusalem Zion is the heavenly dwelling place of God himself. It is no longer an earthly city where he is thought to dwell. On earth, he dwells in the living temples of the hearts of his people. However, in the eschatological consummation, men will not leave the earth and take flight to the heavenly Jerusalem. Rather, the heavenly Jerusalem will descend to earth and God will make his dwelling with men. The last part of this reality is made clear by the presence of the 144,000 who had his name standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. We've seen the Lamb before. In chapter 5 and verse 6, the Lamb was standing as though it had been slain, which became in chapter 5 verses 9 to 13 the foundation for the worship of the Lamb by elders and living creatures and all ranks of angelic beings. Beginning in chapter 6 and verse 1, the Lamb opened the seals of the scroll of human destiny, ultimately revealing the final piece of God's redemptive mission. In chapter 7 verses 9 to 10, the unnumbered multitudes of the nations gave praise to God and to the Lamb. And in verse 14 of chapter 7, those multitudes are said to have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. In chapter 7, in verse 17, John is told that the Lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be the shepherd of God's people to guide them to springs of living water. In chapter 12, in verse 11, we're told that the brothers have conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In chapter 13 and verse 8, we're told that everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain will worship the beast. And in chapter 13 and verse 11, we're told that the beast of the earth mimicked the Lamb with his two horns. In our introductory comments 25 weeks ago, can you believe that? We've come that far. We discussed that there are three concepts of the Lamb that would have been known to John and to his readers. The sacrificial Lamb offered daily in the temple for the sins of the people. The Paschal Lamb eaten at the Passover. And the apocalyptic warrior Lamb, a feature to that genre of literature that arose during the time between the Old and New Testaments. The concept of the warrior lamb comes into view here particularly because the lamb is standing on Mount Zion, which is to say he is victorious and at rest in the permanent dwelling place of God and his people. 
The victorious lamb is said to be standing with his conquering people, represented as the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Recall that in chapter 7 and verse 4, John heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. We noted there that while John heard in chapter 7 and verse 4 the number of the sealed, namely 144,000, what he saw in chapter 7 and verse 9 was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. We argued that the sealed tribes of Israel and the white-robed multitudes of the nations are ways of talking about the same group, namely God's whole people. God's people are his chosen people, counted and numbered and sealed. God's people are the numberless multitudes of the nations who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That same reference to God's whole people is now recalled as John sees the vision of the victorious Lamb and the conquering people. John writes that the 144,000 had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In chapter 13 and verse 16, John wrote that the beast of the earth, who we will learn in chapter 16 is also the false prophet, that this beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This vision of the conquering people of God makes clear that those who belong to the Lamb do not belong to the beast. Remember last week we said you won't have to worry about taking the mark of the beast. It won't happen by surprise. You'll consciously choose it if you rebel against God and give allegiance to the beast. But God's people are sealed. God's people are washed. God's people are numbered. God's people are kept. God's people are measured. God's people are marked out by him. Instead of being marked with the imperfect, continually failing number of the beast's name, namely 666, the people of God are marked with the perfect, majestic name of the Lamb and his Father. John tells us that he heard a voice from heaven. First he tells us what the voice was like, and then he tells us what the voice was. The voice was like the roar of many waters. It was like the sound of loud thunder. It was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now I know that you've seen television and little commercials about angels, and you've decided that angels are just little beings, little cherubs that sit on clouds and play harps. You've seen that imagery, haven't you? But have you ever seen an angel in the scriptures playing a harp sitting along on a cloud just sweet and innocent? Every time in scripture we see the angels, they're fearsome beings, aren't they? They're terrifying and dreadful because they dwell in the presence of God and the Lamb. And sometimes we get the idea that we're going to be sitting around playing harps. John's not saying here that the people of God who dwell in the presence of the Lamb sit around and play harps. He's saying that the sound of their voice raised in praise of the Father and of the Lamb is a, it's a sound that it's hard to describe. It sounds like a, like a cataract, like, 
like a white water, like a roaring river. It, it sounds like a thunder, loud and bombastic. It, it's, it's awfully loud. Uh, Sunday morning, the people were setting up and getting ready for worship and there were kids, you know, that sang in worship on Sunday and they were up on those wooden steps. And, and I don't know if you've ever listened, but if you're on those wooden steps and you make a good, a good, uh, stomp down with your feet, it, it might sound little up front, but in the back, it sounds like a cannon going off. It's, it's thunderous. John says that's what it was like to listen to the saints of God give praise to the Lord. And then he says that the sound, it was like thunder. It was like the roaring of waters. And, and literally, he says it was like harpists harping their harps. That's what it says in the Greek. Harpists harping their harps. That's a way of saying that, that these players who had these 12-stringed harps, they were, they were accompanying a song. That's what the voice sounded like. But the voice was something different. The voice is from heaven, but it's not God speaking. Instead, John tells us that the thunderous, harping, riptide is actually the accompaniment song of the redeemed. There's a discussion among theologians as to whether this song is sung by the redeemed or by angels who are teaching it to the redeemed. I like what Robert Mount says here. He says that the sound is not that of an angelic choir as we see in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, but it is the anthem of redemption sung by the 144,000. They alone, alone, having experienced deliverance, are able to sing its praise. Many commentators see the angels as, having, as teaching this new song to the redeemed. Mount says it's a concept that is theologically inappropriate, and by no means necessitated by the text. Mount says it's the people of God singing this song. I like that. As John asserts that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, he expounds upon the work and worth of God's people, noting four characteristics. One, the redeemed have not defiled themselves with women and are therefore virgins. Two, the redeemed follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Three, the redeemed are first fruits for God and the Lamb. And four, the redeemed have in their mouth no lie because they are blameless. Regarding their virginal character, Tom Schreiner writes, clearly the language is symbolic here. For John is not saying sexual relations defile inherently. Indeed, those who claim that marriage defiles spread the teaching of demons, according to 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 3. The thought then is similar to what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, namely that he betrothed them to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In the Old Testament, the people of God are portrayed as the bride of Yahweh, the Lord, and are indicted for harlotry, for giving their allegiance to other gods. The way we say that is that they played the whore. You remember that language, that they, they've gone after other gods. They've given themselves over to the nations. They've worshipped things that are false. They're God's people. They're God's bride. But they've, they've given themselves over to other gods. What John is saying is that the 144,000, the people of God in the heavenly Mount Zion, have not committed adultery with other gods. 
They have remained loyal to the one true God. When John writes that the redeemed followed the Lamb wherever he goes, he means that the redeemed have embraced the Lamb as their shepherd. They have heard his voice and they are heeding his voice actively in their lives. They're obedient to his will and they walk in his way. It won't be long. On Sunday morning, we'll hear Jesus in just a few weeks tell his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The people of God are willing to go by the way of the cross. Willing to go because we know that is Jesus' way. Willing to go because we have seen Jesus rise and we are confident that by his blood we can overcome even death. Ladd writes that the first fruits was the beginning of the harvest, a partial gathering with more to follow. So some people see in this description of the 144,000 as the first fruits a way of talking about just a particular group of Christian people, a, a subsection of the redeemed of the Lord, as though this is a deposit with more people to follow. But it doesn't have to be that way. Lad goes on to write that there's no thought in the present passage that the redeemed are a first installment of men with the salvation of all to follow. To be sure, God lays a claim upon all mankind, but it's only the redeemed who are actually devoted to him. The emphasis of the term, first fruits, is upon the devotion and consecration of the redeemed to God. As we think about the fact that the redeemed have nothing false in their mouths and they are blameless, we're drawn back to Jesus' letter in chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia. In chapter 3 and verse 9, Jesus said, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Those in the synagogue of Satan didn't just tell lies. That's not the offense here. Instead, they preached a lie. They brought into a false gospel, and they propagated it to others. Jesus has no patience for a false gospel or for those who preach it. So his people are said to have no lie in their mouth, but are blameless. Listen, it's not that God's people have never told a lie, because we all have. Instead, it is that in the end, God's people have not denied the truth of the gospel. We've not bought into the lies of the dragon. We've not given ourselves over to that which is false. And so it is said that the people of God are blameless, which literally means that we are without blemish or spot. The brilliance, literally, not not intellectually, but in terms of our appearance, the brilliance of the people of God is not the result of our own work, but of the work of the Lamb whose blood has cleansed us from every stain. In those five verses, John wants us to listen to the song of the redeemed. He wants us to understand that God's people have been changed, transformed, delivered, ransomed, set free, bought back. God's people have a reason to celebrate. God's people have a reason to sing, to give praise and honor and glory and adoration to God and to the Lamb. 
You know that sometimes we sing that wonderful song, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Remember the song, Since I have been redeemed, I will glory in His name. It's a part of our work. It's a part of our witness. It's a part of our worship to celebrate the excellencies of God Almighty who has purchased us by the blood of the Lamb. My pastor growing up used to tell us on a regular basis that there's no singing people like Christian people. No other religion in the world sings like Christian people sing. We have found in our Bibles countless countless songs to give praise to the Lord and in the power of the Holy Spirit we've been inspired for centuries to write hymns of adoration and praise to our great God. We can never stop writing them because as we continue to reflect upon the wonder of God's redeeming grace we are continually inspired to give praise to Him. It's the reason that when we gather together for worship one of the things we must do is sing the praises of God our worship of God, our lifting of our voices in songs of adoration, it has less to do with the quality of our voices and more to do with the truth of our declaration. We stand and lift our voices in praise because we have been redeemed. And what we do here is but a foretaste of glory divine. Will we do more in heaven than sing? Oh, I am certain of it. But know this, church, we will, do not, we will not do less than sing the praises of God and the Lamb. John says, listen to the song of the redeemed. And then he says, listen to the sermons of the angels. Let's look at chapter 14 and verse 6. John says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds Follow them. Peterson is so helpful here, and I could read you so many things, but there is one lengthy section that I just I just couldn't ignore. I have to read this to you. 
Peterson sees in this passage points of application, and one of those is the importance of preaching. And I want to read this to you. He says, Preaching is the act in which the word of God is proclaimed in awe and adoration among those who worship. That's the first angel. It is also the speech in which the doom of the beast world is announced, the second angel. And it is the discourse by which guidance is given for holy living, the third angel. This many-dimensioned, world-making, salvation-shaping, reality-orienting word of God is always under threat of being silenced or muffled. It is silenced by the closing of the book in which it is written. It is silenced by the sound and fury of daily traffic. It is silenced by the buzzing of ambition and covetousness in our own brains. Preaching gives the silenced word sound again, making it resonate in our ears so that we deal with God not as a memory, but as immediately and personally spoken to us. But preaching tells us nothing we don't already know. It has all been said so many times, and it is, after all, written in the Scriptures where we can look it up for ourselves at our convenience. In a political world in which so many things are happening at once, wars, alliances, negotiations, tragedies, new leaders announcing hope, study groups coming up with plans that will solve the problems of famine and war, It is certainly urgent that we keep up with the news so that we can be informed and act responsibly in the world. And with so much news to attend to, who has time for preaching? Which is the furthest thing from news. We are apt to think so until in the middle of the battle we find ourselves with courage flagging and commitment wavering and realize that the world is not primarily a place where information, news, is stored and retrieved, but a moral and spiritual contest in which we are embattled, and then we are grateful for a proclamation from some mid-heaven pulpit telling us again what God says about what is happening, turning information into command or promise, translating moral memories into spiritual urgencies. We need to be preached to. I need to be preached to. So let's listen to the preaching. The victorious lamb, John says. Nope, let's go to the next page. I get confused sometimes, y'all. Let's listen to the first sermon. The first angel had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. Our first thought when we hear the word gospel is to think of the authoritative message of redemption bound up in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, here we're encouraged to consider the nature of the word itself. Gospel does mean good news, but it is also an authoritative word, a word of conquest, a word of victory, a word of significance. It's a message handed down from on high. In this case, the gospel comes from an angel, one of God's messengers, and it comes to the unbelieving world, for we have learned that the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is John's way of talking about unbelievers. These unbelievers are not concentrated in one nation or among one people. It's not as though we could say it's just the Americans who are sinners. 
but they're among every nation, tribe and language and people. Here is a reminder of the sweeping nature of unbelief. The world, though diverse in color and cloth of its idolatry, shares a common disease, the hardness of the spiritual heart. Robert Mounts writes, It's not the gospel of God's redeeming grace in Christ Jesus here, but a summons to fear, honor, and worship the Creator. It is an eternal gospel in that it sets forth the eternal purpose of God for people, namely that we should worship Him. The angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. Remember that we're in the midst of an interlude. Though the days, uh, end of days has been announced in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, it is not yet come, which we will see in chapter 16. So while the time is short, it's not yet too late for unbelievers to repent. Within the sermon, there are three imperatives or commands. Maybe this was a Baptist angel. He's got three points in his sermon. His three commands are these. Fear God, give glory to God, and worship God. The imperatives reveal the nature of rebellion, of of the rebellion of those who dwell on the earth. They are idolaters. Here is a reminder that no matter how our sin fleshes itself out, lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, ultimately the fruit of all sin goes back to the same root. We want to be in the place that belongs to God and God alone. Notice that John is not calling the earth dwellers to a general religion. He's not saying just worship because they are already worshiping just the wrong God. Instead, he calls them to a specific relationship. They must change the object of their worship. Currently, they are worshiping the dragon, Satan, even if they don't know it. If they're to be saved, they must worship God. Specifically here shown to be the creator. Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. There is a reminder here that it is impossible for a person to know God as redeemer without knowing God as creator. So the angel takes us to the heart of the matter. Those who would be redeemed must revere God. That's they must fear him. Must treat him with dread and awe and majesty and wonder. Those who would be redeemed, they must recognize God's worth. When it says that they are to give God glory, it's saying that they should, they should value God. The, the word glory in the Hebrew context, it means weight. It's the, it's the strength of something. It's the weight of something. It's saying that there's a, there's a heaviness to this. There's a heaviness to our God. There's a weightiness to Him. He carries great worth, greater than anything else. We've got to recognize that. And then those who would be redeemed must respond to God's worth with a right posture. The word worship here is proskuneo. It's it's the idea of laying flat on our face before God. John's talking about a physical act. We've got to bow down to the right God. But understand this, you can bow down in body and not bow down in spirit. The heart has to be yielded to God. The person, the soul, the inner being must be yielded in devotion to who God is. And then it must play itself out in our works. That first sermon is a call to redemption. 
The second sermon is an announcement of condemnation. The destruction in verse 8 in this second sermon is of Babylon the Great. It's the first time that we are introduced to Babylon in the Revelation, but it is by no means the last. George Eldon Ladd reminds us that Babylon was the great enemy of Israel in Old Testament times, and here stands for the capital city of the final apostate civilization, the symbol of human society organized politically, economically, and religiously in opposition to and defiance of God. Babylon had an embodiment in the first century as Rome, and in the Jewish Christian apocalyptic, Babylon became a symbolic name for Rome. But we have to be careful here. Babylon was a way of talking about Rome in John's day, and even as John is writing, his readers would have understood him to be talking about Rome But John isn't really talking about Rome. At least not the actual empire resurrected in our own day or some last day. Instead, he's talking about what Babylon symbolizes and what Rome symbolizes. Bill Cook says that Babylon embodies all of mankind's hatred and animosity toward God and mankind's yearning and longing for sin Babylon is symbolic of mankind's great attempt to overthrow the people of God. Just as throughout the ages there have been many iterations of the Antichrist, there have been many iterations of Babylon throughout the ages. Babylon is every manifestation of the kingdom of this world. Do you remember that? In chapter 11 and verse 15, when the seventh trumpet was sounded, there was a word of declaration to say that the kingdom of this world, the system of evil that underlies every earthly power that has ever marched and risen up against God and His will and way, the kingdom of this world was overcome at the end day by the kingdom of God and the Lamb. Babylon is that kingdom of this world. It's every earthly expression of the underlying system of evil that has as its abode the abyss and as its head the dragon, Satan himself. The angel is announcing that at the end of days this last earthly expression of the kingdom of this world headed by Satan and the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth will come crashing down with every earth dweller who took her mark and traded in her markets. Lad writes that Babylon has deceived and seduced all the nations by the enticements and allurements of her wealth and luxuries. But this cup of sensual delight will turn out to be the cup of God's wrath. I didn't write it down, but in Peterson's book, he makes the comment that that in this work of the beast of the earth, the one who is the religious leader at the end of days, who points all the nations to the worship of the beast of the sea, uh, this false prophet, he will, he will not deal, Peterson says, in the black mass, but in the mass market. In other words, that the beast of the earth, the one who is the false prophet who points us to the worship of the beast of the sea and the dragon. It's his effort to not not seduce us under compulsion, but through a winning spirit. It's the effort of the beast of the earth to 
attract us, to allure us, to draw us in, to entice us. And all those who have not been named in the Lamb's book, all of those who haven't been sealed with the Lamb's spirit, all of those who have been, haven't been measured in the Lamb's temple, all of those who haven't been washed in the Lamb's blood will find that they are readily enticed and allured. And when Babylon falls, they will fall too. And so the third sermon comes. And here John wants us to understand that the same God who redeems is a God who destroys. Do you remember that in Exodus chapter 34, we're given insight into the character of God? It's important for us to know what God's character is like because we live in a world where so few people do know what God's character is like. So many people who seem to know something about the Bible like to tell us that we shouldn't judge anybody, that that's not what God is all about. People read the Bible without real understanding or spiritual insight. They read the pieces they want to read. And then they come away thinking that God isn't a God of justice or judgment or condemnation or wrath. And when we begin to preach on these things, they think that somehow we've taken God out of his context. Maybe they want to be like Thomas Jefferson and use their pen knife to take out the pieces of the New Testament that they don't agree with. But Moses told us in Exodus 34... That the Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but he will not clear the guilty. The same God who is patient and long-suffering, whose long arm is willing to strive with his people, is the God who at the last day will raise that arm in judgment against the wicked. There can be no just redemption without just judgment. That's what this third sermon is all about. It says in chapter 14 and verse 9 that another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength, into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You understand here that for those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book, someone else drunk the cup of the wrath of God for us, right? When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his face, before his Father, being ministered to by angelic beings and being betrayed by sleepy disciples, he is pleading, the Gospels tell us, over and over and over and over. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And the cup that Jesus desired to avoid, but that he ultimately drank for us, is the cup of God's wrath. 
Why in the world would you put yourself in a position to drink the wrath of God and go down to your death when the glorious Christ has already drunk it on your behalf? Christ has borne the weight of your sin. Christ has taken the punishment of your iniquity. Christ has taken in His body all the stripes that should have been laid into your flesh and into mine. Our Savior in His body on the cross has taken the full and undiluted wrath of the Father. He was scorned by God Himself and rejected for us. This wonderful invitation is made to the world to not stand beneath God's righteous frown, but to walk in His glorious freedom. But so many of those who dwell on the earth are enticed by the beast and they take His mark. And so the day will come when along with the beast, And along with the false prophet and with the dragon himself, they are forced to drink in full measure the wrath of the Lamb. John tells us that this cup of wrath is mixed full strength. And in their day when they drank wine, and listen, I know we're Baptists, they drank wine, just accept it, okay? It is what it is. When they drank wine... They were often off-put by its taste. Can you imagine? And so they would take spices and mix it into the cup to enhance the flavor, to make it more palatable. And in so doing, it is diluted. And what John is saying here is that God's wrath is like a wine that is mixed, which is to say that's a, the, to say that wine was mixed became an idiom for saying that wine was poured out. It was, it was put in the glass. So this wine was mixed, but it was mixed full strength. In other words, there's nothing to dilute its power. It's taken full force by those who must drink. John tells us that the drinking of the wrath of God, the cup of his anger, is something that will bring eternal conscious torment. You have in our day some who say that the mercies and love and kindness and grace of God must necessitate a sort of universal destruction at the end of days. As though those who are opposed to God will face His wrath, but that it will be, it will be a nihilism. They will be caught up and destroyed in one fell swoop, burned up forever, end of story. But that is not what the Scriptures envision. The judgment that comes to the wicked, those who dwell on the earth and take the mark of the beast and who are not written in the Lamb's book of life or washed in his blood or sealed by his spirit or measured in his temple or marked by him, those who do not belong to God will drink the cup of his anger and they will be consciously tormented forever. We see in the Revelation in chapters 20 and 21 what that looks like. Even as those who are the people of God dwell in that eternal new city that comes down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, those who are opposed to God, their names are read and the account of their deeds are read. 
And there is a search made in the Lamb's book for their names. And when it is not found, we are told that they are thrown into the lake of fire. So let's pause here for a minute and think. We have in our understanding, common understanding, maybe not you, but commonly, we have in our understanding this idea that when we die, we go to heaven or hell, right? You heard this? You believe this? Talked about this? You die, you go to heaven. You die, you go to hell. It's decided, done, terminated. But one of the things that we're trying to understand as we walk through the revelation is that there is, in fact, an intermediate state. Not purgatory, right? We're not talking about purgatory. That's a Catholic idea. It comes from the, from the apocryphal books, not apocalyptic, but apocryphal books, the books that are not really a part of the canon of Scripture. We're not talking about purgatory, some place where you can work out your salvation or earn God's favor or make up for your failures. That's not what we mean by an intermediate state. Instead, remember that when the Old Testament talks about death, it talks about, anybody? Sheol. Remember that word? Sheol. When the New Testament talks about death, it doesn't use the word Sheol. It uses a Greek equivalent to that, Hades. That's what the word Hades means. And what it really means is the place of death, the place of the grave, where where you go when you die. Remember in the story that Jesus told in in Luke chapter 16 uh, of Lazarus and the rich man. They were waiting, right? They were waiting for ultimate consummation of human history. Lazarus is waiting in Abraham's bosom, paradise, the place of God. I would say that's the place of the righteous dead, those who die in the Lord. And the rich man is waiting in a place of fire, right? He is licked by fire. And so there is torment there, but it is not the last torment. It's a place for the those who die outside of God, those who die outside of the Lord, those who don't have faith in him to await judgment. And what we will see in the Revelation is that there are in fact two resurrections. There is a resurrection unto life for those who are righteous, those who die in the Lord. And there's a resurrection unto death. Those who die outside of Christ are raised and judged and condemned. And the place of the dead, Hades, is picked up and thrown into the lake of fire. A place where the great dragon, the false prophet, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the beast of the sea, have already been thrown. A place where all those who are unrighteous and outside of God are placed at the end of days, tormented forever. John says in chapter 12 that this angel kept preaching, or chapter 14 and verse 12, the angel kept preaching and he said, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And this call is this, I don't want you to be undone thinking that the kingdom of this world is going to prosper. It looks like it is. It looks like it will succeed. It looks like it will be victorious. It looks like everyone is going to give themselves to it and it will be the thing that wins in the end. But don't think that. Recognize, hear, listen to the sermon and understand that God is just. He is just in his redemption of his saints and he is just in his condemnation of the wicked. And so understand that when you go down to your death, Because you refuse to take the mark of the beast. You do not have to despair. You don't have to worry. 
You don't have to wonder, did I make the right decision? Instead, you're blessed. The word makurios is the word for blessed here. And it, it, doesn't just mean, it doesn't just mean that I have a lot of stuff or, or that I own a lot of land or that I've made a great name for myself. It means that I flourish. I'm full, full of life. I have the kind of favor that God desires to put upon the lives of his people on me. Blessed, makurios, fruitful, favored are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then John has one last vision, one last call to listen. And here we should listen, I think, to the grapes of wrath. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour is to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a, vo- with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung for his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. John envisions two reapings, one that I believe is under righteousness, salvation and redemption and one that is under judgment and death and destruction. In verses 14 to 16, John says that the one who was like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand was told by another angel to put your sickle in and reap for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. When John talks about this reaping, I believe he has in view the gathering of the harvest at the end of days that Jesus foretold. Remember that Jesus told us that the wheat was allowed to grow up alongside the tares, the righteous with the wicked. And at the end of the days, when the harvest came, the angels would sort between the wheat and the tares. The wheat would be redeemed, used, saved, purchased, And the tares would be burned and consumed and destroyed. I think that's what's in view in verses 14 and 16. It's that great harvest when the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, who is our judge, brings about the consummation of human history when he puts his sickle to the wheat field of the earth and gathers the harvest so that it may be sorted. But then John tells us that there is another reaping 
the reaping of these wild grapes, these clusters from the vine of the earth. John says these grapes are ripe. Only this time it's clear that there's no intent. There's no intent to use these grapes for good because they are thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. We've heard and we've sung the wonderful battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. They were talking about the ravaging of the Civil War and the cause of freedom. But it's a reference to the destruction of the wicked under the rightful hand of God beneath his brass feet. John tells us that these grapes from the earth, from the vine of the earth, these wild grapes are thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. They're trodden outside the city, which is to say that they are not for redemption. Inside the city is protection. Inside the city is salvation. Inside the city is a home with God. Outside the city is the place of destruction. Outside the city is the place of darkness. Outside the city is where the condemnation happens. And so outside the city, there is a great, great vat where all of these grapes are placed and the Son of God begins to tread them out. John says the destruction was immense. He gives us a really specific understanding of what the destruction was like. He says that the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, maybe four feet, for 1,600 stadia. That's 184 miles. It's the entirety of Palestine. It's the whole region of Israel. It's the entirety of the land covered in a bath of blood. John said, listen to the song of the redeemed. Listen to the sermons of the angels. But listen, listen to the treading of the grapes of wrath. There is going to come a day at the end of days when all those who've given way to the kingdom of this world will be destroyed. Unless we think that somehow that will be a simple slap on the wrist, a, a timeout, a, a rather modest judgment against them. We need to understand that it will be an enduring and eternal and everlasting torment beneath the weight of God's righteous feet. Indeed, the winepress of God's wrath is the footstool beneath his reigning authority. I heard a story this week 
on Dateline. Y'all ever listen to Dateline? Can you stand it? I don't know. Sometimes I can. Sometimes I can. But I listened to a story on Dateline this week. I won't give you all the details except to say it was a murder because that's what Dateline is almost always about. It was the murder of a young woman. And the mother said, the mother of this young woman, said that if you had asked her before her daughter was killed, she would have said, anybody that commits murder, give them the death penalty. I'm for it. And she said, when my daughter was killed, I became anti-death penalty. I wanted her murderer to suffer the rest of his life. Do you think God wants anything less? Do you think that the righteous judge of all the earth, the one who has freely crushed his son in behalf of the world, wants anything less from those who align themselves against his reign and rule? No. No annihilation. No universal offer of salvation. There is either an alignment with God and the Lamb and a redemption that is everlasting. Or there is an alignment with the God of this world, the devil, and a judgment that never ends. Listen. Sing the song of the redeemed. Father, I'm grateful that we have the promise of life eternal in your Son and the assurance that we've not made the wrong choice. There will come a day when it seems that way, when it seems as though the God of this world, the devil, has won, as though his kingdom will prosper, as though his system will prevail, as though his followers will be victorious. And here is the reminder, a call for the saints to endure. He will not have the last word. He and all those who are with him will go down to their death, drinking the undiluted wrath of God poured out upon them in judgment forever. And so, Lord, let us be faithful. Let us sing the song of the redeemed here on earth because it will be even more gloriously so in heaven. And let us take comfort that those who die in the Lord are blessed from now on. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.